Storymakers. Hi, this is Angie Powers. And this is Elizabeth Stark, and we're Storymakers Show. This week, we sit down with author Jacqueline Luckett. After publishing two well-received novels with a hot New York imprint, she decided to go back to school and get her MFA in screenwriting. This gave us the opportunity to discuss multiple concurrent projects and how to manage them, what it's like to have a well-known actor send you an email, and the importance of getting through your fear to get to your art. Just a reminder, please send us an email with any questions you have about writing, storytelling, narrative, and living a life full of meaning. Send your questions to questions at storymakershow.com. And with that, let's catch up with Jacqueline Luckett. For the last uh, two years or seven quarters, I've been working on um, an MFA in the UC Riverside slash Palm Desert creative writing for the visual arts, something like that. Um, and I just finished the program in December. Congratulations. So uh, I, I'm very pleased, but I find that um, the adjustment uh, going back to school was a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. Um, and that's a low residency program. And it's low residency, and that's the perfect thing. If I had had to be in class all day long or on specific days with specific assignments, I probably would have lost my mind. And so the interesting thing is that in terms of writing and in terms of um, my emotional need to have things perfect, um, it, was, it, attacked, it attacked me on all those fronts. So now when you say what I'm working on, um, during the course of that those seven quarters, I you know, wrote the screenplay for Passing Love. And as my thesis, I've written an entirely new screenplay for another project. Fabulous. And I've got several plays and several um, nonfiction essays. And then there's that novel that I keep trying to complete. So um, I took December. This is a long-winded answer to what great. you asked. It's a great but, journey. It's um, And it has been a journey. So I took December off because I found that I was working so hard that my brain was not ready to accept any new projects. Mm -hmm. And then I decided that in January I would go back to my novel, um, which you've read and helped me to generate parts of. But I have a stack of papers uh, on this novel at least four inches high. Um, and I just decided to, uh, put that aside for a couple months so that I can finish up my screenplay because I think the screenplay is about 70% to where it should be. And, um, it will require less thought, if that makes sense, um, and less effort, if that makes sense, than it will for me to decide how I want to use that four inches of paper. So, mm. wow, long-winded answer um, to say that I, I think I'm going to be working on my uh, on my screenplay. Great, yeah. And I think that moment of trying to decide which project is a big issue for writers. Yeah. That commitment. It, it totally is a big issue. But some interesting things happened over the course of... Um, writing this novel and then putting it aside and and because of the classes that we took that I took from you and just because of reading and um just understanding different people's styles I've been thinking about the characters quite a bit 
Mm-hmm. And so, uh, which, you know, Edward P. Jones says that thinking is part of writing and inspiring me to do a lot of thinking. I heard him when he was interviewed by ZZ Packer, oh, about five or six years ago, I think before my first novel came out. And so ZZ asked him how long it took him to write uh, The Unknown World. And he said, well, I thought about it for about 10 years and I wrote it in six months. Mm -hmm. So I'm paraphrasing that, obviously, but his whole point was, that he thought a lot, a lot about the story, about the characters. And so this time that I've had not to really focus on the book, every once in a while, I, I get these insights into the main character and the things that happen. And I think I realized that in the novel that I was putting together, that I spent a lot more time on one detail than I needed to. Mm. And so these are revelations that come to you and, and I'm happy, but I, I, I'm looking forward to getting back to it. Yeah. Are you, did you find... Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, like one of the things that I notice is a lot of writers don't count that time, that thinking yeah. time, as, as work that they're doing towards their project. But it obviously, you can't have a project if you don't have those windows where you step away and you give your mind the opportunity to kind of play with those, those pieces um, with no stress. Just kind of explore them. And I think uh, when I first started writing, I felt very guilty as a result of my Catholic school upbringing (laughs) (laughs) um, about uh, taking time away from the written word. And, um, you know, I would do reading or I would do thinking, and then I would get this tremendous guilt feeling about not really working. And then I had a conversation with a friend of mine, and... um, She's the one that told me or reminded me that reading and thinking are an essential part. And you're right. I mean, maybe people do it differently, but it's that idle moment thinking um, where there's no pen and paper in front of you. Or maybe you're just taking a walk or meditating and then some idea comes to you that's really important to the story. So I I think it's very – I'm glad that I had that time. I I feel really good to have had it. Yeah. Did did the – the MFA in not in well not in screenwriting exactly but but in writing for visual media or whatever did yeah. it did it change your approach to writing or your way of thinking about story? Well, um, I'm an anti-structure, anti-outline writer, and uh, when you do a screenplay, as Angie knows, then you need to have. Uh, obviously a, a very tight structure, and you need to outline. Um, your story. That's just the way it is. Um, And so for me, the shift from outlining first and then writing, no, from writing first and then outlining to outlining first and then writing, is that right? Mm -hmm. Um, Was was and still is very hard. So say, for example, let's take Passing Love. Because the story goes between past and present, There were lots of things that I had to make sure in either the past or present didn't happen before either one of the characters discovered what was coming to pass. Um, And so I wrote the novel and then I went back and I structured the whole thing. So and I structured it literally by putting, you know, sticky paste and all this stuff up on my walls to just chart 
the progress of the story, and I had to do it that way. But in writing the screenplay for the story, because it was sort of mapped out for me, I didn't have to do the stickies on the wall, but I still did have to do an outline. So um, it's it's very different. Did it affect me? Um, I think I'm still resistant to structure for a first draft for me, my process in writing the novel, simply because I like that idea of just letting things flow and letting the story come and not be as contrived as I want it to be. For me, outlining feels as if I'm contriving the whole thing. And maybe that will change. But at least maybe for not. this, <laughs> no, and not. maybe not. Yeah. I think we have to stick to the as writers. We have to stick to the processes that make us successful. Absolutely. And I think it's really good to test out other processes. You may get something from it, but right, you may not. But you still know what's out there. And and sometimes we have to try all different kinds of tricks to get our stories to where we want them to be. So in that respect, yes, screenwriting has helped me. For the screenplay that was not an adaptation, but that was a, a you know an original screenplay, did you did you find ways to kind of explore story before you outlined it, or in the process of outlining it? Um, pr- probably more in the process of outlining it, because. Um, I tend to do very lengthy outlines. So just a side anecdote, when I first turned in the uh, screen, the screenplay outline for Passing Love, it was 80 pages. And that is just not acceptable. But what happened to me is as I was writing the outline, I would get all these ideas about what characters would say and what they would do. And so I included all that. And that was for me. So... Um, in writing for the new screenplay, I, I still did that, but then when I had to turn it in to, for school, I just cut all the rest of that stuff out. So there's one for me, and then there's one for the teacher or the producer or whatever. Um, but I've decided, because I have a third uh, screenplay idea in mind based on a 10-minute play that I did, that my process really should come from story. So... I had the play, and then I wrote a short story about it. And now from the short story, I want to adapt. So I think I'm a writer that comes from story first and then impose some structure and then move forward from there. So you had the idea, you wrote a short story, and then you're turning it into a screenplay? Yes, this is for my third screenplay that I wanted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, was, I was going to ask you if you had considered novelizing the, the screenplay that you wrote. Oh, that's interesting. Actually, for this, the, my thesis screenplay, which involves four characters, four females, post-50s, <laughs> let's say it like that, because that's the, that's the woman, that's the women I, I love and I want to talk to. I've actually thought about it more as a TV show, mm-hmm. um, because as, as you grow to love the characters, obviously you want to see what dilemmas they get into, how they get out of them. Um, the interesting thing is that the novel that I'm working on, I'm thinking of turning part of it into a screenplay. Uh-huh. So, yeah, but, you know, how many how many um, pots can I stir at one time? I, I need to get into uh, one of them before I actually jump into the other. I, I think my brain is far more, more ambitious than my body. Well, my- you know, I think it's interesting because um, there are different 
when you choose to write a screenplay, you're choosing to work in a vis- visual medium. Yes. When you're writing a novel, you're working in primarily auditory, but you can bring in other senses as well. Right. Even though you're using your eyes to read. And I think what's interesting is like looking at our stories and kind of breaking apart what aspects of our story can be communicated in that very compact visual style mm-hmm. and what parts of our stories really can't. There's a, you know, and so I think what's um, interesting is I want to support you in having as many pots as you want <laughs> because it's, you know, there are people who do that, you know, and there are people who are capable of doing these things. And I've definitely heard of people escaping the doldrums of one project by leaping into another. And I think that there's something to be said for that kind of, that kind of procrastination. Well, I've got three projects going and I'm going to procrastinate on this one by working on that one. Right. Right. And I've heard of a lot of people doing that same thing. I haven't been able to do that um, quite as well as I should. It seems that um, I sort of get obsessed and Mm -hmm. when I'm working on one project and then I don't want to go to something else. Mm -hmm. But this whole issue of um, visual screenwriting as a very visual medium and the novel being um, uh, less visual because we we do draw images um, is an interesting one. What I've, what I've learned is that interior monologue that our characters have is, in some instances, better served by the novel than it is by the screenplay. Because people are kind of, well, viewers are sometimes bored with just knowing what's going on in somebody's head. And, of course, there's solutions for that. You know, you can have the voiceover or people can tell things. But one of the things I do love about novel writing is that you can get into a person's head, and that becomes a critical part of the story. But the visual part of, particularly with Passing Love, because there is so much visual to it, that's fascinating, but the visual must serve the story. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, of course, I love Paris. My characters in Passing Love love Paris. But Paris, while in the novel I wanted it to be a character, it is less of a character than it is in the film. And so the visual... I don't get to, I as the screenwriter, don't really get to control it. That's the director. I mean, that's that part of that collaborative process. So you just give the director um, some ideas of what you um, would sense the visual to be. Whereas when we write novels, we get to tell the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have. I wanted to ask you about the collaborative element because um, on one of your blogs, you mentioned that you know this was a few years ago that the audiobook was out for Passing Love, but you didn't want to listen to it because you had their voices in your head one way, and even though you were sure they did a wonderful job, you know you didn't want to hear it. Now here, you're gonna let turn so much over, right? I mean, will you even go see the movie? <laughs> My mother says, my mother's 94, I love to quote her because she says funny things, she's my fa- my best fan, and she says, well, Jackie, maybe they'll let you be in the movie, and I, and I laugh and I say, well, I have no idea what part I would play, maybe I'd be like Alfred Hitchcock and just do the walk-on, but I've let that go, and, and part of the reason I've let that go, although I still have not listened to the audio version, and I will not listen to the audio version. I'm going to let the screenplay and the visual concept go. The actress who bought the rights to the movie loves the book 
and the characters as much as I do. So as her, her being the producer, I think that she's going to fulfill my vision. But I know that um, when it hits, when a director gets in there, the director has his or her own ideas. And I, I actually have learned that as the writer, I have no say. So, yeah, I'm going to go see the movie, you know. Hopefully uh, at a premiere with, in a fabulous dress, right? That's what I was thinking. In a fabulous dress, you know, um, just walking down the red carpet. I, I believe in visualization. So I see myself receiving the Oscar for the, you know, best adaptation. Yes. I think, I, you know, it's thrilling. I have told you a long time ago that I, I always wanted it to be a movie. Um and so let's just hope they're they're looking for money. So let's just see what happens. I, I know you don't, don't want to talk about the specifics of the deal, but can you talk about the process of getting your work out into the world? And just to say you're a successful novelist who's published two novels with a major New York publisher and then kind of switching gear. And can you talk about how you how you went about selling the screenplay? Well, I didn't do anything. I just wrote the book. Um, and yes, I, so I don't want to discuss the specifics because I'm very superstitious. But I will tell you that um, one day I received an email from um, an, an actress whose name I recognized. And I immediately called up one of my friends and I said, is this for real? And, and, and it, the email was very simple, uh, read your book, loved it. Um, would love to talk to you. Mm. So here's the naive part of me thinking, oh, isn't that fabulous? She really liked my book. She just wants to talk to me about it. So um, once I realized that it was serious and real, I actually met with her in a pretty posh um, hotel in downtown LA. So I'm still going in thinking, oh, she just really liked the book. <laughs> She wants to talk to me. It didn't cross your mind. I mean, it, it never crossed my mind. And then she started her pitch, how much she really loved the book, how much her husband encouraged her to contact me. And then we started talking about the movie. And I did my best to play it cool. Right. <laughs> so I'm very blessed that um, she discovered me. Mm. Um, in terms of searching for Tina Turner, my first novel, I I won't write the screenplay for that because um, it's a tad personal, mm. and I don't think I could get the objectivity mm. that I think somebody needs. But of course, twist my arm, pay me, and I will. <laughs> um, but more importantly, I just think that would make a good musical. Mm -hmm. So I have a friend who knows somebody who knows somebody and I gave it to them and who knows, but I, there are various ways that authors get discovered and to take their books to uh, screenplay. And for me, just having somebody prominent who loves the book, who really was as close to my writing as I was, mm -hmm. that was a real compliment. I mean, it was not, yet yeah, a, a New York Times bestseller who knows once the movie comes out what kind of numbers that will that will do but um, she just found a book actually she told me that um, another author that she know another author screenplay 
writer that she knows recommended the book, and she picked it up. And so it, it's just pure happenstance. So tips for aspiring screenwriter writers, write a novel, right. get it to be as good as you can, and then... Pass it out to famous people. Right. Gonna or go. ideally publish it <laughs> right. as a way. Well, that's what I mean. Pu- publish it first. But, um, you know, when you get an agent, have that conversation, I think, for aspiring novelist screenwriters. Just, you know, do, do you think that this is a novel that um, somebody would be interested in to turn into a screenplay? Ask that question. Um, I know I never asked that question of my first agent. Mm. And ironically, I asked it of my second agent. Um, and his response was very, was very negative. Mm. So needless to say, that person is no longer my agent. But I say, ask the questions. And oftentimes, some of these large publishers have connections in the film world, you know, and so, you know, even if the connection is just send it to an actress or actor that you think might fit into the role. But that, you know, as we know, shouldn't be the primary goal mm-hmm. of why you write. You should write for the love of writing, for the love of story. And um, as Angie said, do the very best that you can. And then once that part is done, if you choose to focus on the screenplay or whatever, then focus on that. And I think that's such important advice. I mean, especially women we know don't necessarily ask. So even the fact that you you somehow were talking to a friend about how great the first novel would be as a musical. I mean, that's even putting it out there, creating that vision so that that person could say, hey, I know somebody who knows somebody. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I've been reading a lot of things about women and writing lately on uh, various you know articles and things like that. And, and we do sometimes... Um, forget to ask that question. We forget to ask a lot of questions. Um, And I think for me, uh, when I first started writing and I first started approaching agents, I felt as if the power lay in their hands. And to some extent, it does and did. But there's also the power that, let's call it power slash confidence slash courage, that the writer has to have to ask the questions and to not be afraid of rejection. Mm -hmm. So um, backtracking a little bit, it's really important for a new writer when you're looking for an agent to make sure that you are seeking agents who have an interest in the kind of work that you're writing, the kind of audience that you're writing for. And then um, that person falls in love with your work, but maybe for some reason they don't feel that they can sell it. Well, that shouldn't defeat us. And as women, we should ask the question, why? Um, and why? Why not? What can I do to change that? Definitely, we should not be shy. Mm. Yeah, it's really powerful. I know. <laughs> um, so I guess my question for you, though, is as someone who was successful, did you always have the desire to write screenplays? Or what was that story? Tell us the story of deciding to go back to get your MFA. Oh, I have been toying with the idea of getting an MFA uh, for the last 10 years, and it's because my background was not in writing. So, uh, you know, back in the Stone Age, I went to Cal State Hayward, got a degree in sociology, never wanted to be a social worker, and then veered off into a career path of sales and then um, family. And um, as I kept feeling this um, niggling a sense of 
you want to write, you want to write, you want to write, then that's when I started doing it. Um, the idea of a screenplay uh, never came to me until after I wrote the book. And so I did speak to a director and uh, when he was talking about the book, and he, his approach was uh, usually we let the author write the first screenplay for the a adaptation, and then technically, even though it was unspoken when he said, and then we let somebody else clean it up and fix it. Um, because you don't know what you're looking at but for. Uh, but um, the author is the one who knows the book most intimately and can really tell which things should or should not be included in the book. So somewhere out of the back of my mouth or the back of my brain, I said that I would do it. And um, scared the heck out of me, but... Um, you know, it's only fear. You got to conquer it. And so I said I would do it. So then I started looking for avenues of, of how I would get this done. And I know that there's a hundred thousand books out on the market on how, how to do screenwriting, but that's a tedious effort to go and learn everybody's method. And then I had taken Angie's class um, a millennial ago and kind of knew structure a little bit. So, um, I applied for graduate school because I thought that that was where I would learn how to write a screenplay. And in the meantime, I took, I read some article that gave an approach to doing an adaptation. And so I went back to France <laughs> and to Paris with a friend. You gotta and, do yeah, that. I was gonna say, that's a critical uh, yeah. step in any screenwriting project. It's, it's Paris I, I first. That, yes. Located, and then, located. Yeah. Yes, I would highly recommend that um, uh, to everybody, aspiring writer or not. And um, so I went back there and I started just writing a screenplay uh, of all the scenes. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So um, I, would, I went through the whole book and I said, this is scene and this is just background information. So I did that. And then I ended up with like uh, 300 pages. <laughs> <laughs> but it was okay because this was all part of my learning process. But the ironic thing for me about going back to school and to study the screenplay is that my expectation for being taught um, was very different from what I got. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And uh, so my advice to somebody going back to school in screenwriting, if you have not done it before, is to really check out the program and to understand what you're looking for. So I knew that I wanted to come out of school with uh, the Passing Love script, and then I wanted to have something else. But the exchange back and forth between uh, the professor and me as the student wasn't as smooth in the beginning as I wanted it to be. Mm -hmm. And quite frankly, uh, the professor that I have it, had at first didn't really understand what I was trying to do. And so then I had to give him the book to read it. And he's the one that sort of let me move forward with that 80-page outline. <laughs> and then when I got to somebody else, they were like... But my sister actually um, helped me quite a bit because she's worked in TV. And so she just has a mastery of structure and she goes from the emotions and things like that. So I just kept writing and writing. So um, in terms of the adaptation, yes, I got what I needed, but it wasn't until 
I started my second project and I was working with who I feel is the best screenwriting teacher in the program that I then got those questions about, um, you know, story development, char- character development. Um, not so much what happens in Act 1, 2, and 3 because those are pretty static, you know, uh, the inciting incident has to happen by page right. 20, 25. That's, that wasn't the issue. The issue for me, particularly as a novelist, was putting too much information into the story, again, that visual um, interior monologue kind of thing, um, that didn't get to what was supposed to happen um, quickly. So my decision to go back to, to school was to, to, A, focus on trying to get that screenplay for Passing Love Done, and then because I'm interested also in playwriting, to be able to work on a couple of plays that I already had. And the interesting thing for me is that now that it's all said and done, I've had to look back and remember why I went there in the first place, and those are the reasons that I just told you. And so a lot of learning for me was done on my own. But I got a lot of work accomplished that now I have a body of work that I can revise and go forward with. And, and I know that uh, given the same amount of time, I, I would not have had that. Yeah. You know, so you have to think, you know, why did I spend this huge amount of money? Um, but, but you need to think about that in the beginning and then keep asking questions. So that kind of goes back to what we were talking about, women asking questions. I I was so excited about being in the program and I made some assumptions as we do sometimes as people and maybe as women that people will take care of everything else for us. Mm -hmm. And so that um, they will teach me, of course, how to uh, write a screenplay rather than me asking, so what specifically do you do to teach me how to write the screenplay? So just asking questions. Does that answer your question? Yeah. And I think one of the things that's sort of interesting is is looking at the um, relationship between being in a program of some kind and the investment in that program helping us reinvest in ourselves. Like there's a way in which where it's like, okay, I've spent this money. Therefore, that money deserves that I set aside this time to do the work. Exactly. Rather than us really being able to say, you know, and for myself, I often kind of struggle with that, right? The permission to make that same kind of space when I haven't invested $58,000 a year. So right. <laughs> that's, that's, you know what? That's really key. Um, and I have an office outside of my home. And so some days I would go to my office and I would sit there and then I would say, not only are you spending money on your office space, but you decided to go to this program. And I like the way you put it, Angie. You decided to make this investment. So now start writing. And I think also when we go back to what we talked about with writers, um, not doing enough thinking about what they want to write or how their characters want to want to be. It gave a justification to that free thinking period of time um, that, you know, okay, well, I have to think about my characters. I have to think about my story. I can't just write it down. And, and that is all part of going to school. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've been told by um, one of my writing friends that, this was pretty typical of low residency programs, that there isn't a lot, 
I don't want to say there isn't a lot of teaching. Well, let's say the method of teaching is different. I, I prefer that. But on the other hand, um, you're working with some people who have been in the business. And this goes for not only the fiction part of the program. A couple of the uh, professors were just nominated for Penn Awards. Nice. So it's a, it's a great faculty. And then those are people, they know me, they've read my work. I can I can go to them and chat or um, what do you know make a connection or do something so yeah. there's both an academic and a networking uh, aspect to the program that I think is is really key. And I think whether you're in person or not, you know, having gotten an MFA myself, having been through uh, UCLA's um, certific- certification program. Mm-hmm. You know, you get sometimes you get lucky and sometimes you don't, and it doesn't matter if you're in person or not. <laughs> like you, you I agree. People I just, agree. And and the you know sometimes I thought, well, since I the the professor that I had at the end, I wish I'd had him at the beginning. Um, now I don't regret that because I've been able to experience three different people, mm-hmm. and I've taken something positive from each one. Um, to grasp and to perform the art of screenwriting. So I have no regrets, uh, at, at least with uh, making that decision to go back to school. <laughs> what's, the be- what's, what, what's one of the best pieces of writing advice you have either gotten or, or learned that we could pass on here? No pressure, just do it now. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, I get so many pieces of advice because I'm blessed to be around people like yourselves and and friends who are all writers. So for me, the biggest piece of advice is just to write and to be true to yourself um, and the story that you want to write. Don't try to be the writer that you admire the most. just be yourself, and to, to me, that's the best advice. I, I constantly remind myself of that. You know, okay, Jackie, you're not Toni Morrison, and that's okay. I'm blessed because I can read Toni Morrison, but I really have to be Jackie Luckett and to write with the voice that comes from within me. So be honest and true to your own voice. That's so beautiful and kind of a funny segue into our Steal This segment. (laughs) So we end every episode with uh, this Steal This segment. Uh, T.S. Eliot said, amateur poets borrow, professional poets steal. He probably wasn't the first person to say it. And um, so we'd like to look at things that we um, have come across in our reading or wandering or whatever that we would like to make our own. This is a really hard question for me um, because it's singling out something specific. Mm. So um, I'll just kind of go with my reading from last year. I decided to read all the plays of August Wilson. Mm. And um, boy, was he ever a genius. And he was a, a genius in capturing time and human emotion and racial emotion. Mm. And I love that. And it wasn't so much necessarily that all of that was at the forefront because there was obviously a a bigger story, but it was always there as such subtext that I loved it. And then the other book that I thought about was um, Americana. 
Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. And um, her book was really long, much lauded, and had the print was really small. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, I say that because she jam-packed a whole lot into that book. And what I'd like to be able to do as smoothly as she does, she had the ability to weave past, present, and future so smoothly that I had to pause and take note of it. And as all of us writers do, mark up my book to show examples of, of how she did that so smoothly and so beautifully. And again, I think I'm coming back to this subtext, you know, where you're not stating specifically uh, an emotion, and in her case, it was the emotion of being in America, having the immigrant experience in America, yet still longing for home and maybe an old romance. But it wasn't so much at the forefront. It just was sort of under everything that happened, regardless of the character. So I'd like to steal some subtext mm. from her, um, just the ability to have that um, duality of meaning without smashing uh, a reader. Uh, on top of the head, you know, where somebody comes away and thinks, oh, yeah, that was a really good story. But, oh, wow, she was really trying to do this. And I got the message. So, right. Sometimes. Yeah. 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 That yeah. totally puts me in mind of an exercise from, you know what I'm talking about, the art of fiction from. Um, Charles Baxter. No, it's. Um, Janet Burroway. Nope. Gardner. Garden, Gardner. Garden Gardner. I love this. I know. The art of fiction, how many could there be? But he has a wonderful exercise where he says, like, describe a barn as seen by a man whose son was just killed in a war. Don't mention the son or the war. Uh, and so it's like that kind of, I love the, you know, when I was in high school, I had a teacher who did a really good job of giving us very specific kinds of uh, exercises like that. Mm-hmm. And it, and you're so right with well, well done subtext can leave you just emotionally in a completely different place than that kind of on the nose. This is how they were feeling. This is what they were thinking. So, you know, that's interesting because once I took a one day class from Terry McMillan and she gave us an exercise that was really similar to that. Mm-hmm. And I wrote something that made us all cry. And that's, I'm glad you brought that up because that is what subtext is. So thank you for reminding me of, of that. And, and I think that both, you've talked about screenplay being so visual, but I think more and more maybe um, fiction is becoming that visual with the subtext, like the interior is the subtext and that, and that it's, it's by, it's what like Robert Owen Butler in From Where We Dream talks about the sen- sensual selectivity or sense something, like, you know, where you're picking which details hit somebody because of what they're thinking and feeling. And mm-hmm. somehow that recreates that emotion in the reader or in the well, viewer. It's interesting because all of those things have to be tied together. And I, you learn in screenwriting that, um, if a character touches a tree, there has to be some meaning behind what the tree meant in another way or in relationship to the story. Whereas with the novel, they could be touching the tree and then experiencing Mm. mentally, again, in that interior monologue. And then we can see the effect of touching it on, you know, the life thereafter. Mm -hmm. Um, But screenwriting is a, a completely different beast 
I like it, but again, I think I have to go from story. Mm-hmm. And that's just me. Everybody yeah. else can do it their own way. <laughs> uh, is that what you're stealing, or do you have a different one? Oh, I have a, I have a different one, actually. I, I'm rereading Judy Carter's The Comedy Bible. And she, you know, has some, you know, very specific techniques for developing uh, stand-up comedy, basically. And uh, she has, you know, her idea of a premise is you have this, you have a topic of some kind and you have an attitude associated with it. So uh, to get you started, you ask one of four questions. So let's say your topic is parenting. And then you would say... um, what is hard about parenting? And then we'd write out a list of things. And what is weird about parenting? What is scary about parenting? What is um, stupid? Like, so those are the four. So the idea is that you have an attitude. And then those, those sentences are premises. So, oh, um, right. you know, what's hard about parenting is the fact that your kids will never feel gratitude. Say. Oh. Right? <laughs> Just You're right. The, <laughs> theoretically. Let's just say theoretically. And um, and then I was thinking about Egri's uh, premise and how from that he has these abstracts where it's sort of like uh, greediness leads to isolation or love conquers everything. So he's got these sort of abstracts and verbs, contexts. And I was kind of thinking about how those two things fit together a little bit today. So what I want to do is steal some of Judy Carter's uh, topic and attitude and bring it in to Egri's uh, abstract premises to uh, premises to sort of think about sharpening what it is you're saying. Do you know what I mean? And whether you collect this at the end of your story or at the beginning to develop it, it doesn't really matter. But bringing in attitude to those abstracts, so the values of what you're talking about are clearer when you go back to do more revision. I like that. I like that very much. And I, (laughs) I am reading this book called Pieces of Light that is about memory. It's actually nonfiction. Okay, his name, it will be in the show notes. It's something like Charles Fenhaugh or something. Fenhaugh or anyway, maybe Fenhaugh. Um, he's British. And um, I'm going to say it's Fenef. Yeah, who knows? <laughs> anyway, uh, it will be in the show notes. Um, but he is, so it's nonfiction and it's about the science of memory and what it can tell us about uh, our own recollections, how we kind of storytell about memory. And um, so really interesting. And I'm writing about memory in a novel He's writing about his own experiences, but then he'll bring in the science. But what he does in the in the passages about his own experience is he creates this sort of suspense around describing what's happening with his memory, the ways that it, you know, he thinks something's going to be there and it's not there, or or he, you know, even the fact that he videotaped six months of a trip to Australia and one week of it got deleted, and it was the week that he wanted to write, you know, it was the day that he wanted to write about was in the middle of the week that got deleted. And so that even became kind of a turning point. But but anyway, what I want to steal is the ability to to talk conceptually in the context of drama so that you're kind of getting ideas out there, but it somehow feels really narrative and suspenseful. Okay, let me know when you've got that one. <laughs> got it i think but, it, but yeah, i but, like that idea because then you re, you remember that in the novel that i'm trying to write now a lot of it does involve memory and um i, I like that concept and, and i think that that kind of 
thing that you want to take away is what um, makes the reader get closer to the story because everybody can relate to some memory on some different level. Um, and so that's great. Yeah, it's intriguing. We'll see what happens. Yeah. Well, I, I want to tap your mind about so much more. Um, and, and so hopefully you'll come on again as these things flourish uh, yeah. and unfold. Yeah, um, I absolutely will. 